Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Good morning, Living Hope Church. It is really good to be with you this morning and to be able to slow down again and respond to all these wonderful songs that we have just sang by listening to the Word of God. I'm sure there's been many things this week that's already fought for your attention. Many different noises and voices that have spoken into your life that you have to filter and make sense of. And now we get to slow down and hear from God Himself, the most important voice there is. So let us just pray one more time and ask Him for His help as we come to study His Word. Father, we thank You that You are the God who speaks. Thank You that You are the God who has spoken in Your divine Word. And You've given it to us to to be able to get to know You. You've given it to us so that we can make sense of this world. You've given it to us so that we can know how to be saved from our sins. And so, Father, as we come to study your word even now this morning, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Show us how glorious and magnificent you truly are. Help us see Jesus as our King and as our Lord, who has given Himself completely to this work of saving sinners like us. And so that even as we leave here today, again, we Lord, we are so confident in what You have said. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As you guys know, we are studying the book of Galatians, and so I want to invite you now to open up your Bibles to Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians, and we're going to study chapter 3. We are continuing in verses 15 to 18 today, and to help us get, again, some, a bit of a running start and more of the context, let us read from Galatians chapter 3, and uh, we'll read, start reading in verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Now our text for today, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. 
And I wonder, have you ever been disappointed by someone else because they made a promise to you, but they did not keep that promise? I mean, surely we can all think of some way we've been let down by other people who did not keep their word. Or maybe you remember a time when you made a promise to someone, but you ended up not keeping that promise yourself. And maybe you felt terrible about it, letting them down. I mean, think of a a child whose dad promised him that he will take him to his first ever soccer game. I mean, this child, he's so excited. I mean, he can't believe it. Dad is going to take me to my first ever soccer game. But even though he's so excited about this idea of going to his first ever soccer game, he knows there's always this risk. Something might happen that dad is not going to keep his promise. So what does the son do? He calls his dad closer. And he says, Dad, you have to pink your promise. You have to pink your promise that we will go to that game no matter what. And by connecting his finger with his dad's finger, somehow there's this confirmation taking place. This contract is made between the father and the son. In other words, there's no way this dad can get out of this promise. Because after all, I mean, he made a pinky promise. This is a serious promise. Now, in a sense, that is what we have going on here in our next section of Galatians. Paul is wanting to show the Galatians how important the promise was that God made with Abraham in relation to the rest of the Bible. And specifically, when the covenant he made with Moses came along, the law, it did not change what God had initially promised. Because in God's eyes, a promise is a promise. In other words, Paul wants to show the Galatians that when the Mosaic covenant was given to Israel, it did not take away or change the covenant God made with Abraham. And so Paul is wanting us to think about the law of God. He wants to think us, us to think about the law of God in the right way. Because what the book of Galatians is teaching us is that people get out of touch with the grace of God. They start the Christian journey with faith in the promises of God, but they don't stay there. So what do they do? They turn to their own efforts again. They're turning back to the law. And their so-called good deeds and their own performance to earn God's blessing. And one of the reasons this happens is because people forget how to relate to the law of God. Or they've maybe never really understood what to do with this this big section of the Bible, the law of God. What this next section in Galatians is doing is it's forcing us to take a step back again. Because Galatians chapter 3 is helping us understand the whole story of the Bible. Even just in this section, it helps us understand the whole story of the Bible. And what Paul is saying is that you won't understand the story of the Bible until you understand God's promises and the way He makes promises. And you won't understand the Bible until you understand where the law and where Jesus fits in. And so today we will see that Paul is talking about specific words like covenant and promise and inheritance. And so kids, if you are listening to a word today, the word I want you to listen to is the word Promise. Promise. And what all these words essentially tell us is that God has written it down in Scripture. I mean, think about it. He has gone on record legally binding Himself to what He has said. Do you think about the Bible in that way? Which means God is telling us that He does not lie. To Him... A promise is a promise. Because it's impossible for God not to keep His promises. And in the context of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is wanting to show us how the promise God made to Abraham, it didn't change. It didn't get amended or, or altered. 
edited when the covenant made with Moses came along. God has been working out His great salvation plan. And what we need to do is, we need to understand how the covenants in the Bible work together in this big plan of salvation. We need to see that when God spoke to Abraham, there was this commitment that was binding. So when the law came into the picture, it didn't mean that God went back on His promise. Where salvation now has changed from faith to works. And so before we dive into verses 15 to 18 of chapter 3, let us just remind ourselves again of the big picture of Galatians at least. Galatians. We know that Paul and Barnabas, they've planted churches throughout this region of Galatia. They saw how people responded to the gospel of grace. And uh, Paul leaves them and he moves on and everything is going well. But then he finds out that the churches he planted were in danger. They're in danger. Without any kind of thanks for them, he launches then into saying how amazed he is that they have turned to another gospel, which is no gospel at all. And what was happening is that they were being persuaded by these zealous Jews that you need grace and the law to be part of God's family. Which means... The Galatians needed to submit to circumcision and the works of the law. And remember, these guys were not bashing having faith in Jesus. They were just simply saying that faith in Jesus is not enough. And what Paul is doing is that he's essentially revealing to the Galatians their understanding and attitude toward the law. Remember at the end of chapter 2, Paul said, when it comes to justification by faith, you have to die to the law. Like he did. Which was this massive thing for him to say as a former law-abiding Jew himself. And so Paul's trying to show the Galatians that how they should be thinking about the law of God because for the typical Jew, it would be very normal to think that you need to keep the law because the law is this new important covenant that changes how we relate to God. It's not that Paul's saying that doing the law is a bad thing. We've got to hear that. In other letters in the New Testament, he actually makes it quite clear that believers can work out their salvation, their new life in Christ, while following the law. Like in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. And we're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead. But Paul is adamant for them to know that obedience to the law is in no way a requirement to be justified before God. And so he appeals to their experience. To remind them how they received the Holy Spirit. Which was not by any works of the law. It was only by faith. He goes on then to appeal to the Old Testament. To show you are cursed if you rely on the works of the law. That's what we saw last time in verses 10 to 14. Paul argued that all who rely on the works of the law, on their obedience, are under a curse. And the justification and salvation cannot come through your obedience. Why? Because of our sinfulness. Because to disobey one part of the law is to disobey, to disobey the whole law. Paul then reminds them of what they already saw and knew by faith, by making his point very emphatically that Christ came and became the curse for us. Which is good news, isn't it, church? That He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf so that we can be set free from the law. So that this roadblock of our own efforts is taken away so that we can be recipients of the promised Holy Spirit. And now Paul wants to show the Galatians in our text today how the promise God made to Abraham is in fact superior to the covenant He made with Moses. There's this relationship between the covenant made with Abraham and the covenant made with Moses. And the Judaizers, these guys, they can make their own argument. Because they would be like, yes, it's true, Abraham believed. But in that same context where Abraham believed, God gave the sign of the covenant, which was what? Circumcision. Remember, we saw that in Genesis chapter 17. 
And then they took that a step further because they argued that God eventually added to his requirement of circumcision the obligation that Abraham's descendants should also obey the law of Moses. I mean, they could go to Genesis 26 verse 5, for example, and they, they argue that Abraham himself received God's promises. And then it says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So for them, to be blessed means faith plus the works of the law. They made up their own version of the gospel. By not understanding what was going on with the relationship between the promise and the law. They were putting these covenants on the same level, you could say. And viewing the law as this addition to the promise. But Paul saw the law as operating on an entirely different level. Because it had a different purpose. The law had a different purpose. And so to show us how to think rightly about the law, Paul wants to take a closer look at how promises work from God's perspective. How the promise God made to Abraham is not on the same level as the Mosaic Covenant. He wants to show us the relationship between law and between promise. And so one of the first points he makes here is in verse 15, which is, number one, God does not go back on His promises. You've got to see this. God does not go back on His promises. Verse 15. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul has been telling the Galatians a few things. He's been calling them a few things, right? I mean, he calls them fools. He called them bewitched. But now, how does he address them here in this verse? He refers to them as brothers again. Brothers. And so what does it tell us? It tells us that Paul has not given up on the Galatians. He's still very frustrated with the fact that they are missing with the gospel, but he still sees them as brothers. And he's wanting to give them an example they can understand. That's why he says to give a human example, brothers. Which is like saying, let me give you an example from everyday life. Because he really wants them to understand how God cannot go back on what he had already said. And what is the example? Well, he says, even with a man-made covenant, this, this, this relationship between two people, this man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And what Paul is saying is that even if you look at the kind of covenants that people make with each other, once that covenant is in place, no one can come along and make any changes to it or add to it. And the word covenant in the original language is the word diatheke. And this word can either mean covenant or it can refer to a will or testament. A will or testament. You know what a will is, right? My wife and I, we have a will. We have a will. If anything should happen to us, this document explains what will happen with our kids and all our stuff. And what you do with the will is you have to put all the info in there that you want, and then you have to get it notarized by the lawyer after you've signed it. And once this will is in place, my son can't come along and says, hey, I want my dad's car. Let's just put that in the fine print. I want my dad's car. He can't add his own additions to our will. And Paul says the same is true with a human covenant. Because a covenant was this solid agreement, this binding solid agreement that cannot be changed. I mean, think about it as a marriage covenant. A marriage covenant. You can't make a, a covenant before God as two people and saying you love each other this way and that way. And then after a month, you come back and say, I want to change the covenant. I want to add this condition. I will love this person if they make me coffee every morning. Let's just get that in the fine print. They need to become my slave. But the thing with a, a will or testament is I can't still make updates and changes myself. I can just still do that any time. You know, if I want to amend my will, I can update my will. But with a covenant, there's this legal, binding commitment that cannot be changed. 
Because at the most basic level, a covenant is this oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And we actually have several examples of these in the Bible, of these human covenants amongst people. This was a normal thing, especially amongst kings and leaders. You see this in 2 Samuel 3 verse 12. And it says, And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does this land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. So here you have this human covenant that cannot be broken. And once the covenant is ratified, it's done. It's done. You can't change it. It's locked. It's sealed up. Now what Paul is saying is that if that is true on the human realm, how much more is that true on God's realm? And what this means is that the Mosaic Covenant did not come along after the Abrahamic Covenant and added to it or changed it. That's the point. The original promise is still the original promise. And many times when you have a, a legal contract, there's all these T's and C's, you know, in the fine print, all these terms and conditions. But the theological argument Paul is making is that the law can't add terms and conditions to this already sealed promise. When God made His covenant promise to Abraham. Because God has committed Himself to His word and nothing could change that. And our problem is, honestly, we fall into the same kind of wrong theology like the Judaizers. Where people mix law with promise. We make God's promises conditional on our own performance. But Paul wants us to help think about how God thinks, to show us that God made His promises like this covenant, a promise that is finalized and cannot be changed. It's permanent. And God cannot go back on His promises. And so when the Mosaic law was given at Mount Sinai, God had no intention in that moment. He had no intention to go back on His gospel. He's already committed Himself to this promise and, and this plan to get us back in the Garden of Eden. It's going to happen. All the nations will be blessed through this man-man Abraham. But look, then look at what Paul says next. Look at what Paul says next. God, to show us how this is going to happen, how are we going to get back in the garden according to this promise, God says, He made a promise to Jesus. This is big. God made this promise to Jesus. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. And so to help us see how permanent this original prom gospel promise really is, without interference of the law, God says to us, look, you must realize the connection between the covenant I made with Abraham and how that connects to Jesus. Because the promise that was made to Abraham and to his seed was ultimately a promise made with Christ. And so what the whole Old Testament teaches us is that Christ, in fact, is the seed of Abraham, isn't it? That people were waiting for. And so the promise made to Abraham could not be fulfilled until Jesus came. Because even as you look at the original promise again in Genesis 12, you see it had to do with land and with seed. The promise God made with Abraham, land and with seed. And this covenant was based on grace, as we've been saying, and not on Abraham's works. I mean, it's like that promise to this kid about the soccer game. If I make a promise to my son and say, I will take you to the soccer game, that is the commitment I've made to him. But if I say, I will take you to the soccer game, if you clean up your room, well, I'm definitely not going to the soccer game, am I? And then that little word, if, is what I've added is conditions to this promise. Because now the fulfillment of that promise is based on His obedience. 
But God did not say to Abraham he had to clean up his life for God to keep his end of the bargain. Because the promise was based on grace. And yes, this promise had implications for the rest of the world and Abraham's offspring. But now Paul is making this big shift to emphasize the difference between the, the offspring, plural, more than one, and to offspring, singular, referring to just one. And the word offspring in verse 16 could also be translated seed here. Seed. And so, from a, think about it from a grammatical standpoint. You could say, I have a handful of poppy seeds. If I say I have a handful of poppy seeds, it sounds like more than one, doesn't it? But I could also say I have a handful of seed. And in both cases, they can refer to more than one. And so it's easy to read Genesis and think every time it says offspring or seed, it refers to more than one. But Paul is pointing out here in verse 16 in Galatians that God spoke the covenantal promise to Abraham to his singular seed, to one person. And that's why Paul says it refers to one. But where does Paul get that? Where does he get that? Where does God say these things? Well, we see it at least in two places in Genesis. Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Same thing again in Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations and an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. See, God made an unchanging covenantal promise that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And He made this promise a long time ago. And so as you read your Bible, it's this beautiful, unbroken thread that continues throughout the whole Old Testament. Because for God, a promise is a promise. So let me try and summarize it for you, this, this idea of the seed promise. Because we know that God first promised to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would conquer and crush the head of the serpent, right? Genesis 3, verse 15. And when God promised to Abraham that a son would be miraculously born to his elderly wife Sarah, this child was to be called Isaac. And God then later reaffirmed His covenant promise to Isaac. Genesis 17, verse 9, and with his seed after him, it says. God said the same thing to Abraham when there was this issue with Ishmael and Hagar. So God told Abraham again, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Genesis 21, 12. And then years later, when God made this covenant with David, he promised to give him one descendant who would build a house for God's name. This one king would reign from David's throne forever. 2 Samuel 12, verse 4 to 14. So God told David, I will set up your seed after you. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And then you turn to the Psalms. You see the promise pointed out again in the Psalms. Psalm 89, verses 3 to 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, you're asking, who is the seed? Who is this offspring of both Abraham and King David? And whom the covenant promises are going to be fulfilled? And Matthew genealogy opens up the answer. Matthew 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Paul is essentially saying here, the covenant promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because God made His promise to Jesus. And there's no way, church, there's no way that God is going to break His promise to Jesus. And so whatever you think of the law, it couldn't alter or add to the promise because of the time of this original promise was made, it was always pointing to Jesus. It was only going to find its fulfillment in Jesus and never in obeying the law. 
And so as you read your Bible, you have to take a step back and you have to read it through what God is doing with Jesus. Because you know that it is our sin that has messed up this world. We do not deserve this grace, these promises. We do not deserve such gracious promises. But who does? Who deserves this promise? Jesus does. It all centers on Jesus. And so you, are you not thankful that God made His promise with Jesus, His perfect Son? And as we've been seeing in Galatians, if you have Jesus, you have this assurance that you are going to be part of this perfect world that is coming. We are going to end up back in the garden with Jesus. Because the promises do not depend on you. These promises do not depend on your obedience. They depend on Christ. That's why Paul wrote in Corinthians and said, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Church, that's freedom language. That's freedom language. I don't have to add to the law any of my own works because God cannot go back on His promises. The promise He made to His Son. This unchanging, perfect, holy God cannot break a promise made to His unchanging, perfect, holy Son. And so to make his point even clearer, Paul says there's more to this. There's more to this. There's more to this how this Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant are not on the same level. So he says thirdly, the timing can't change the promise. Not even timing can change the promise. Verse 17. This is what I mean, he writes. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, if you've been reading Paul here and your head's spinning and you're trying to make sense of it all, you might be like, what does this all mean, Paul? And he's like, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. Basically, no amount of time in between the two covenants could make the promise God made in Genesis to be invalid anymore. No amount of time allows for it to be changed. Because it would be easy to think for the Jews. I mean, it's been so long. It's been 430 years. It's been so long since that original promise. Now God gave us the Mosaic law. Surely this law now is more important. But Paul says no. No time. Not even 430 years is enough as to make the promise void. And so what Paul is saying is that the law, because it came so late after the original promise, could not cause the promise to lose its validity or its power. And so this is what happens when people read the Bible in isolated sections. When they look at the law and they disconnect it from what happened before it and what happened after it. What Paul is saying is that the law came later. Yes, it came later. This law was characterized, characterized by law. Which sounds weird. I mean, that's obvious, right? The law is characterized by law. And the point is that the law is not characterized by promise. The opposite. In other words, the law that is characterized by law is a law that says that you must do it all. One commentator puts it like this. He says, to Abraham God said... I will do this. To Moses he said, you must do this. The promise is a religion of faith that is dependent on God. The law sets forth a religion that is dependent on man. Same man goes on to say, the promise centers on God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative, God's sovereignty, God's blessing. The law, on the other hand, centers on man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility, man's behavior, and man's obedience. And so the point is, no amount of time in between can change the promise. And somehow blend them all together. We end up with faith plus works for salvation. And if believers are going to live under the Mosaic Covenant... 
then the promise given to Abraham will be lost because it will, will be made void. If that was possible. Because the way of the law makes human obedience the way of receiving the promise. And if that is true, then circumcision and all these other things of the law come back in play, doesn't it? All those things of the law will be required. And so Paul is saying, brothers and sisters in Galatia, chronology matters. Salvation history matters. Timing matters. Our obedience is a response to the grace of God, not something that is added to grace to earn grace. So we have to understand this timing of all of this, this timing between the covenants, because that means they are not on the same level. Not only can't you change the original promise, because that promise was made to Jesus, but no time that separates the promise and the law will ever change what God had already committed Himself in doing. And now finally, Paul says, these covenants are not the same, they're not on the same level, because the original promise is complete. The original promise is complete. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God did give it to Abraham by a promise. Here Paul is talking about how one receives an inheritance. And by the definition, inheritance is not something you earn, is it? It's simply something you receive. Simply with a will and testament. Your parents leave what they have for the kids, and the kids just receive it. And so as one man says, to work for that which is already guaranteed is foolish and unnecessary. Now what Paul is saying again is that if you could get an inheritance by the law, then the original promise goes out the window. But what is the inheritance that Paul is talking about? Because if you look at the promise in Genesis again, it said it refers to land and seed. And we've already seen how Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed promise. But what about the land promise? Where does this leave us with the land promise? Because by the time Abraham dies... The only piece of land that he had, it was the graveside of his wife, Sarah. And the thing is, God has always had something bigger in mind than just a piece of land in Canaan. How does Paul put it in Romans 4, verse 13? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Heir of the world sounds a lot bigger than just Canaan, doesn't it? The author of Hebrews, he tells us something similar. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16. But but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And what all of this is telling us is that this promise, inheritance of land, is pointing us to a, a time in the future where we will see the new heavens and the new earth. Peter said the same thing, 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And as we've seen, this, this realized in the promise of the seed who first had to become a man and die for us, us lawbreakers. To be the fulfillment, to be the one who perfectly kept the law for us. So that we, you and me, can be included in this reality of living with Him in this new city. This new world where only righteousness dwells. And so Paul makes it clear. The promise and its inheritance does not depend on the law. Because God gave it to Abraham 
by promise. And Abraham didn't deserve it. If you give someone to someone, he didn't deserve it. He did not do anything to earn it. It was given to him. So what Paul is telling the Galatians is that those who are united to this one seed, to Christ, as we've been seeing in chapter 2, share in this blessing of the inheritance. Because later in in chapter 3, verse 29, Paul says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs. Someone that receives an, an heir is someone that receives an inheritance. Heirs according to the promise. And all of this is by grace. It's all grace. And if it's all by grace, how can it be by our own efforts? Why would you want to go back to the law? Why would you try and work for something you already have by faith? Why would you want to put the promise and the law on the same level? Because in God's mind, a promise is a promise. God had a different purpose for each covenant. Because Paul has made it clear that the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, they're not on the same level. And so Luther, he says it well, he sums it up. He says, if the inheritance came through the law, then God would be a liar and the promise was given in vain. It's useless. But as we've seen today, this promise of God is more than just the pinky promise. It's more than just a pinky promise. It's a promise that cannot be changed. It's a promise that is permanent. It's a promise that was made to Jesus. And there's no way that God can break a promise to Jesus. You can say that when you look at Jesus, God would die before He would break His promise. And He did die to keep His promise for you. This is a promise that cannot be changed by any length of time. Just because there's all this time in between, that does not mean God has forgotten. Jesus shows us that God has not forgotten you. From one covenant to the other, because it's a promise that is complete. And because this promise is complete in Jesus. And so I like how one commentator says it. He says, man cannot succeed in perfectly keeping the law. And God cannot fail in perfectly keeping the promise. Because the covenant of promise is complete. The covenant of law can in no way improve or change it. So I want you to think about your attitude towards the law. What is your attitude toward the law? We've seen here today that nothing can change God's complete promise his perfect plan not even the law because the law does not define or bring clarity to the original promise it has a very different purpose that's what we're going to look at next sunday because the law did not come to tell us about salvation the law came to tell us about sin and if the law can't save us if it can't make us more righteous if it doesn't supplement the original promise, then what is the purpose of the law? That is the very question of verse 19. Why then the law? And that's what Paul's going to answer to us next week. In fact, after next week, we're going to slow down again and we're going to actually work our way through the Ten Commandments. A short series on the Ten Commandments till the end of the year. Because as we better understand how the law fits into the storyline of the Bible, the better we will understand the person of Jesus. And how does this influence you right here, right now? All of this has implications for how we read our Bibles. Paul essentially shows that he reads his Bible historically. In other words, he reads his Bible seeing how the storyline of Scripture unfolds. How God is at work through different people and events and covenants to get us ready for Jesus. He doesn't read his Bible like a a systematic theology textbook only. 
where he's grouping all the, the relevant passages on a certain topic together and mushing them together. He's following the progress made in God's revelation. That is what we teach you in the biblical theology class at ABTC. If someone reads the Old Testament and they come to the Mosaic Covenant and the laws described in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, they don't read it and apply it to themselves directly. They read it from a new covenant perspective. A perspective that teaches us that Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. That we are now, as Romans 6.14 says, not under law, but under grace. Because Paul reads his Bible with a Christ-centered perspective. And we need to do the same. We need to do the same. We can actually make sense of the Old Testament by God's grace through the lens of Jesus. And we've seen today that the true and only offspring of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that where all the others failed, Abraham, Moses, David, all of them had this long list of failures, that Jesus was the perfect offspring of Abraham. We fulfilled what God had promised. Those of us who are true believers in Jesus, we are under the new covenant. We approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus. For the Old Testament people, the Jews, the law of God was central. And many people today, they still wrestle with how, what do they do with passages like Leviticus 19.19? Think about it. That you can't wear a garment made of two types of material. What does that mean? Does that mean that Christians should only wear 100% cotton clothing? That is why we need to make sure we understand the law and where it fits in. God actually gave that to help the Israelites be different from the rest of the world. But the other thing we are reminded today is that how promises work. How promises work. It's impossible to earn a promise. The only way to receive a promise is to trust in it. If someone promises me a new car, there's nothing I can do to make sure I get that car. I have to trust that what he said is going to happen. We must trust that this person who made this promise will keep it. And God is calling us to trust Him. For the promises He makes, because He is the only one who can keep them. This all means that God does not deal with us according... God does deal with us according to His promises, not according to our works. God promises eternal life and rest from your own efforts to all who come to Him by faith and trust in His Son. And then finally, number three, when you do show signs of fruit and good works in your life, you should be thankful and you should rejoice. Knowing that God is at work in your life. The Apostle John said it, like this, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if your response to anger is love and kindness, that is God at work in your life. If you respond to criticism with humility rather than pride, that is Christ working in your life. If you respond to God's grace with obedience, that is Christ working in you. Too many people still believe today that eternal life comes from what we do. Paul could not be any clearer. He has made this point again and again and again. When the law says you do this, the gospel says accept this. Receive this. Because a promise is a promise. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you so much that we could slow down again and see you are such a merciful God. A God that could not break his promise even if he wanted to. A God that gave us this wonderful promise that was made to Jesus and we are in Jesus by faith. Trusting in what he's done on the cross is sufficient to take all our sins away. That is sufficient to take everything we've done that is vile and corrupt and evil before you. The promise that says that we are your sons and daughters. We are your children. And Lord, Lord, we see here today that no law can come and change that. That the law, in fact, was given for a wonderful purpose to show us our need for Jesus. And so, Father, even as we open up our Bibles and as we go back to your Bible and we read your word, help us to look for Jesus. Help us to be excited to see Jesus and what he has done to make all of this possible, that we can have a relationship with you. Help us not to rely on our own efforts and keeping the law and blurring the gospel in our own minds and in our own hearts, but to keep it clear and pure by understanding the big story of the Bible, knowing that you are coming again. This promise will find its completion, this total fulfillment when we are back in the garden with you. Oh Lord, we long for that day. Help us to live each day by faith, trusting in your great promise and not in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.